Chapter Twenty Seven of the Imperialist by Sarah Jeanette Duncan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Octavius Milburn was not far beyond the facts when he said that the Elgin Chamber of Commerce was practically solid this time against the Liberal platform though to what extent this state of things was due to his personal influence might be a matter of opinion mr milburn was president of the chamber of commerce and his name stood for one of the most thriving of elgin's industries but he was not a person of influence except as it might be represented in a draft on the bank of british north america he had never converted anybody to anything and never would possibly because the governing principle of his life was the terror of being converted to anything himself if an important non-entity is an imaginable thing perhaps it would stand for mr milburn and he found it a more valuable combination than it may appear since his importance gave him position and opportunity and his non-entity saved him from their risks certainly he had not imposed his view upon his fellow-members they would have blown it off like a feather yet they found themselves much of his mind most of them were manufacturing men of the conservative party whose factories had been nursed by high duties upon the goods of outsiders and few even of the liberals among them felt inclined to abandon this immediate safeguard for a benefit more or less remote and more or less disputable john murchison thought otherwise and put it in few words as usual he said he was more concerned to see big prices in british markets for canadian crops than he was to put big prices on ironware he couldn't sell he was more afraid of hard times among the farmers of canada than he was of competition by the manufacturers of england that is what he said when he was asked if it didn't go against the grain a little to have to support a son who advocated low duties on british ranges and when he was not asked he said nothing disliking the discount that was naturally put upon his opinion parsons of the blanket mills bolted at the first hint of the new policy and justified it by reminding people that he always said he would if it ever looked like business we give their woolen goods a pull of a third as it is he said which is just a third more than i approve of i don't propose to vote to make it any bigger can't afford it he had some followers but there were also some like young of the plough works and windle who made bicycles who announced that there was no need to change their politics to defeat a measure that had no existence and never would have what sickened them they declared was to see young murchison allowed to give it so much prominence as liberal doctrine the party had been strong enough to hold south fox for the best part of the last twenty years on the old principles and this british bootlicking feature wasn't going to do it any good it was fool politics in the opinion of mr young and mr windle then remained the retail trades the professions and the farmers 
both sides could leave out of their councils the interests of the leisured class since the leisured class in elgin consisted almost entirely of persons who were too old to work and therefore not influential the landed proprietors were the farmers when they weren't alas the banks as to the retail men the prosperity of the stores of main street and market street was bound up about equally with that of fox county and the elgin factories the lawyers and doctors the odd surveyors and engineers were inclined by their greater detachment to theories and prejudices delightful luxuries where a certain rigidity of opinion is dictated by considerations of bread and butter they made a factor debatable but small the farmers had everything to win nothing to lose the prospect offered them more for what they had to sell and less for what they had to buy and most of them were liberals already but the rest had to be convinced and a political change of heart in a bosom of south fox was as difficult as any other industrial commercial professional agricultural lorne murchison scanned them all hopefully but walter winter felt them his garnered sheaves it will be imagined how mr winter as a practical politician rejoiced in the aspect of things the fundamental change with its incalculable chances to play upon the opening of the gate to admit plain detriment in the first instance for the sake of benefit easily beclouded in the second the effective arm in the hands of a satirist of sentiment in politics and if there was a weapon mr winter owned a weakness for it was satire the whole situation as he often confessed suited him down to the ground he professed himself though no optimist under any circumstances very well pleased only in one other place he declared would he have preferred to conduct a campaign at the present moment on the issue involved though he would have to change his politics to do it there and that place was england he cast an envious eye across the ocean at the trenchant argument of the dear loaf he had no such straight road to the public stomach and grand arbitrator of the fate of empires if the liberals in england failed to turn out the government over this business they would lose in his eyes all the respect he ever had for them which wasn't much he acknowledged when his opponents twitted him with discrepancy here since a bargain so bad for one side could hardly fail to favor the other he poured all his contempt on the scheme as concocted by damned enthusiasts for the ruin of businessmen of both countries such persons mr winter said if they could have their way would be happy and satisfied but in his opinion neither england nor the colonies could afford to please them as much as that he professed loud contempt for the opinions of the conservative party organs at toronto and stood boldly for his own views that was what would happen he declared in every manufacturing division in the country if the issue came to be fought in a general election he was against the scheme root and branch mr winter was skilled practised and indefatigable 
we need not follow him in all his ways and works a good many of his arguments i fear must also escape us the elgin mercury if consulted would produce them in daily disclosure so would the clayfield standard one of these offered a good deal of sympathy to mayor winter the veteran of so many good fights in being asked to contest south fox with an opponent who had not so much as a village reeve-ship to his public credit if the conservative candidate felt the damage to his dignity however he concealed it in elgin and clayfield where factory chimneys had also begun to point the way to enterprise winter had a clear field official reports gave him figures to prove the great and increasing prosperity of the country astonishing figures of capital coming in of emigrants landing of new lands broken new mineral regions exploited new railways projected of stocks and shares normal safe assured he could ask the manufacturers of elgin to look no further than themselves which they were quite willing to do for illustration of the plenty and the promise which reigned in the land from one end to the other he could tell them that in their own province more than one hundred new industries had been established in the last year he could ask them and he did ask them whether this was a state of things to disturb with an inrush from british looms and rolling mills and they told him with applause that it was not country audiences were not open to arguments like these they were slow in the country as the mercury complained to understand that agricultural prospects were bound up with the prosperity of the towns and cities they had been especially slow in the country in england as the express ironically pointed out to understand it so winter and his supporters asked the farmers of south fox if they were prepared to believe all they heard of the good will of england to the colonies with the flattering assumption that they were by no means prepared to believe it was it a likely thing mr winter inquired that the people of great britain were going to pay more for their flour and their bacon their butter and their cheese than they had any need to do simply out of a desire to benefit countries which most of them had never seen and never would see no said mr winter they might take it from him that was not the idea but mr winter thought there was an idea and that they and he together would not have much trouble in deciphering it he did not claim to be longer sighted in politics than any other man but he thought the present british idea was pretty plain it was in two words to secure the canadian market for british goods and a handsome contribution from the canadian taxpayer toward the expense of the british army and navy in return for the offer of favors to food supplies from canada but this as they all knew was not the first time favors had been offered by the british government to food supplies from canada 
just sixty years ago the british government had felt one of these spasms of benevolence to canada and there were men sitting before him who could remember the goodwill and the gratitude the hope and the confidence that greeted stanley's bill of that year which admitted canadian wheat and flour at a nominal duty some could remember and those who could not remember could read how the farmers and the millers of ontario took heart and laid out capital and how money was easy and enterprise was everywhere and how agricultural towns such as elgin was at that time set up streets of shops to accommodate the trade that was to pour in under the new and generous preference granted to the dominion by the mother country and how long mr winter demanded swinging round in that pivotal manner which seems assisted by thumbs in the armholes of the waistcoat how long did the golden illusion last precisely three years in precisely three years the british nation compelled the british government to adopt the free trade act of forty six the wheat of the world flowed into every port in england and the hopes of canada especially the hopes of ontario based then as now on preferential treatment were blasted to the root enterprise was laid flat mortgages were foreclosed shops were left empty the milling and forwarding interests were temporarily ruined and the governor-general actually wrote to the secretary of state in england that things were so bad that not a shilling could be raised on the credit of the province now mr winter did not blame the people of england for insisting on free food it was the policy that suited their interests and they had just as good a right to look after their interests he conceded handsomely as anybody else but he did blame the british government for holding out hopes for making definite pledges to a young and struggling nation which they must have known they would not be able to redeem he blamed their action then and he would blame it now if the opportunity were given to them to repeat it for the opportunity would pass and the pledge would pass into the happy hunting-ground of unrealizable politics but not and mr winter asked his listeners to mark this very carefully not until canada was committed to such relations of trade and taxes with the imperial government as would require the most heroic efforts it might run to a war to extricate herself from in plain words mr winter assured his country audiences great britain had sold them before and she would sell them again he stood there before them as loyal to british connection as any man he addressed a public as loyal to british connection as any public but once bitten twice shy horace williams might riddle such arguments from end to end in the next day's express but if there is a thing that we enjoy in the country it is having the dodges of government shown up with ignominy and mr winter found his account in this historic parallel nothing could have been more serious in public than his line of defence against the danger that menaced but in friendly ears mr winter derided it as a practical possibility like the liberals young and windle it seems to me 
he said talking to octavius milburn that the important thing at present is the party attitude to the disposition of crown lands and to government-made railways as for this racket of wallingham's it has about as much in it as an empty bun-bag he's running round taking a lot of satisfaction blowing it out just now and the swells over there are clapping like anything but the first knock will show that it's just a bun-bag with a hole in it folks in the old country are solid on the buns though said milburn as they parted and alfred hesketh who was walking with his host said it's bound in the end to get down to that isn't it presently hesketh came back to it quaint idea that describing wallingham's policy as a bun-bag he said and laughed winter is an amusing fellow wallingham's policy won't even be a bun-bag much longer said milburn it won't be anything at all imperial union is very nice to talk about but when you come down to hard fact it's australia for the australians canada for the canadians africa for the africans every time each for himself and devil take the hindmost said hesketh and when the hindmost is england as our friend murchison declares it will be so much the worse for england said milburn amiably but we should all be sorry to see it and for my part i don't believe such a thing is at all likely and you may be certain of one thing he continued impressively no flag but the union jack will ever wave over canada oh i'm sure of that hesketh responded since i have heard more of your side of the question i am quite convinced that loyalty to england and complete commercial independence i might say even commercial antagonism may exist together in the colonies it seems paradoxical but it is true mr hesketh had naturally been hearing a good deal more of mr milburn's side of the question staying as he was under mr milburn's hospitable roof it had taken the least persuasion in the world to induce him to make the milburns a visit he found them delightful people he described them in his letters home as the most typically canadian family he had met quite simple and unconventional but thoroughly warm-hearted and touchingly devoted to far-away england politically he could not see eye to eye with mr milburn but he could quite perceive mr milburn's grounds for the view he held one thing he explained to his correspondents you learned at once by visiting the colonies and that was to make allowance for local conditions both social and economic he and mr milburn had long serious discussions staying behind in the dining-room to have them after tea when the ladies took their fancy-work into the drawing-room and dora's light touch was heard upon the piano it may be supposed that hesketh brought every argument forward in favour of the great departure that had been conceived in england he certainly succeeded in interesting his host very deeply in the english point of view he had however to encounter one that was made in canada it resided in mr milburn as a stone might reside in a bag of wool 
mr milburn wouldn't say that this preference trade idea if practicable might not work out for the benefit of the empire as a whole that was a thing he didn't pretend to know but it wouldn't work out for his benefit that was a thing he did know when a man was confronted with a big political change the question he naturally asked himself was is it going to be worth my while and he acted on the answer to that question he was able to explain to hesketh by a variety of facts and figures of fascinating interest to the inquiring mind just how and where such a concern as the milburn boiler company would be hit by the new policy after which he asked his guest fairly now if you were in my shoes would you see your way to voting for any such thing if i were in your shoes said hesketh thoughtfully i can't say i would on grounds of sentiment octavius assured him they were absolutely at one but in practical matters a man had to proceed on business principles he went about at this time expressing great esteem for hesketh's capacity to assimilate facts his opportunity to assimilate them was not curtailed by any further demand for his services in the south fox campaign he was as willing as ever he told lorne murchison to enlist under the flag and not for the first time but murchison and farquharson and that lot while grateful for the offer seemed never quite able to avail themselves of it the fact was all the dates were pretty well taken up no doubt hesketh acknowledged the work could be done best by men familiar with the local conditions but he could not avoid the conviction that this attitude toward proffered help was very like dangerous trifling possibly these circumstances gave him an added impartiality for mr milburn's facts as the winter advanced his enthusiasm for the country increased with his intelligent appreciation of the possibilities of the elgin boiler the elgin boiler was his object lesson in the development of the colonies he paid several visits to the works to study it and several times he thanked mr milburn for the opportunity of familiarizing himself with such an important and promising branch of canadian industry it looks said octavius one evening in early february as if the grits were getting a little anxious about south fox high time too i see crookshank is down to speak at clayfield on the seventh and tellier is to be here for the big meeting at the opera house on the eleventh tellier is minister of public works isn't he asked hesketh yes and crookshank is an ex-minister replied mr milburn looks pretty shaky when they've got to take men like that away from their work in the middle of the session i shall be glad remarked his daughter dora when this horrid election is over it spoils everything she spoke a little fretfully the election and the matters it involved did interfere a good deal with her interest in life as an occupation it absorbed lorne murchison even more completely than she occasionally desired and as a topic it took up a larger share of the attention of mr alfred hesketh than she thought either reasonable or pleasing between politics and boilers 
miss milburn almost felt at times that the world held a second place for her End of chapter twenty seven